All right, let's test your audio really quick. So for you, let's name five things that you can eat in Philly and nowhere else. Oh, okay. Five things you can eat in Philly. That's a good one. I think Beeler's Donuts. That's a Lancaster County Farms donut shop here in Philadelphia. Marciano's is a close place actually in my neighborhood and they do these really great kind of like strombolis. One time it's a specialty, they do tomato pie, but their strombolis are really nice. Right now you can only eat Buena Onda in Philadelphia. That's my taqueria. Love it. That's three. Okay. So what other, let me try to think. Oh, we do a chef in residency program at Volver, the restaurant and performing arts center. And we bring in chefs who are emerging stars who are just need a spotlight. And so, yeah, his name is Chance Anis. And he has a, a Filipino restaurant that's called Tabachoy. And he has a really nice uh, lumpia dish that and he's opening in two weeks. So I wanted to give him a shout out. It's going to be really, really tasty. Let me give you another Philly-centric unique thing, which the easy one is like the cheesesteak, right? Or John's roast pork. But listen, John's roast pork is nice. The roast pork and provolone sandwich, you can't beat that. So John's is a, that's the secret, like really best sandwich in Philadelphia. So John's roast pork sandwich. Love it. Could not agree more with that. We didn't even get water ice. We didn't even get pretzels. That's good. We're good. Your audio sounds good. Water water. water ice. You sound good. Let's rock. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or, like the chefs we feature, make a difference in your community. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, This episode is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. If you're like me and you enjoy a good gin and tonic or a Negroni or two, or maybe you're a martini person like my good buddy Ian here, regardless, seeing a bunch of different gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store can be a little daunting. Honestly, these days when someone asks what gin I prefer, I just say Ford's. It's easy and delicious. Ford's Gin was crafted by bartenders and for bartenders and at-home bartenders alike. Maybe that's you, Mr. At-Home Bartender, to make a really good gin cocktail. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? Thank you, Mr. Simon Ford. I'll add a thank you. Thank you because I love martinis, as you mentioned. Thank you because I'm an at-home bartender. And thank you because I also do love Ford's Gin. You know who else loves Ford's Gin? Did you listen to last week's Beyond the Drink? I did, of course. That's who. Last week's Beyond the Drink, Demi Natoli from Nashville loves Ford's Gin. It's her house gin, she said, for the last three years, which made me really happy. And this week, I'm going to tell our listeners, if they haven't heard it in the past, in another episode, like... You're always talking about this gin and tonic from Spain that you had and how great it was. Relevant, I think, for this week's episode that this is airing in. 100%. This week is Chef Jose Garces, who's a Spanish and Latin food authority. And my 
my gin and tonic experience in San Sebastian, Northern Spain. It's like a show. I always say this. They put <laughs> ice in like a massive, like a fishbowl, like a goblet. And then they paint the ice cubes with lemon peel. And then they show you the gin bottle and then they just pour it in and you tell them when to stop. And then they pour the tonic water like over a long spoon and then they give it one stir. And I thought this was like a show of this one place, dude, but but like the next five places I went to, they all like did the similar thing and it made me so happy and it was so good. Well, my wife has been in gin and tonics, so I guess I am booking a flight to Spain tomorrow. Oh, I need a gin and tonic tonight. Okay, anyhow, one quick thing which we love about all of our partners, as most of you listeners know, they all have a sense of giving back to their community and Fords does so by giving back to the bartending community, which makes sense. They've also supported events and fundraisers, but overall, they always have the bartending community in mind. So thank you to Fords. To learn more about Fords Gin, go to FordsGin.com and follow them on social media at Fords Gin. Please drink responsibly. Fords London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Fords Gin is a registered trademark. Fords Gin, we thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find a link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest is an iron chef, father, husband, cookbook author, James Beard Award winner, entrepreneur, and food innovator. He's known as a leading culinary authority of Spanish and Latin American food and continuously pushes the boundaries of culinary excellence. He's behind a number of restaurants in one of my favorite food cities, Philadelphia, ranging from Spanish tapas at his first restaurant, Amada, to a tasting menu style experience at Volver. He co-founded the Garces Foundation in 2011, which provides ongoing and actionable assistance to the immigrant community of Philadelphia. Can't wait to talk more about that. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with a chef I partly blame for the existence of this podcast, Chef Jose Garces. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for such a nice introduction. And I'm really happy to be on the show with you. Dude, it's so good to have you. It was a long time coming. Over 10 years ago, I started a version of this podcast before it was a podcast at a culinary school in Chicago called Le Cordon Bleu. And at the time, we had seen each other around at different festivals, food festivals around the country. And I had told you about this project. And you were one of the few chefs who consistently asked me about it when Whenever I saw you, you're like, hey, what's going on with that? Hey, what's going on with that? And I had stopped doing it. And you continuously asking me kind of lit a fire under my ass to oh, get going. And go. between yeah. you and between Salomonov also in Philly with some of the, you know, the work he was doing in the community. God, I think I have Philly to blame for beyond the plate. So Wow, wow. To blame or to thank. I mean, either Both. way, I think <laughs> a positive blame. <laughs> How's Philly, man? It's good. It's uh, as we are in, in, in most urban centers, sadly, crime and safety is an issue. And I would say in general, it's, you know, we're coming out of COVID and there's a lot of good energy around that. There's, I would say, like a whole new like workforce that's kind of come online and are like infiltrating our industry here here in Philly and, and I think probably around the country. You know, there's so much talent here in Philadelphia. There's so much like pride in like food and what we do. And so that energy like remains, it's here. We've got to get uh, on the other side of like the safety 
piece because that's important. You know, I have restaurants in town and I want my guests and everyone to feel safe. So I think there's some movement. It's such a like top of a uh, top of mind topic that I'm hopeful that, you know, our city officials and business community, everyone kind of rallies to like figure this out in short order. And when we get on the other side of that, it's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. It's been, you know, I remember, so I've been here almost 20 years and I've just really have seen it evolve so much, definitely from a culinary standpoint and also from just like a, just a community and infrastructure and building and development. It's just, I mean, I, Prior to the pandemic in 2019, I remember like just driving down the street and being like in such amazement of the energy and the feel and what was happening. I'm like, wow, this town is really like popping. It's very cool. So I think being on the other side of the pandemic, hopefully, and all's good this winter, we can, you know, start to revisit that and relive that and keep moving again. Yeah. Love it. I feel like you always have a new project happening. Like whenever I'm like, What's he up to? Like, I feel like there's always something going on. Is that like a personal trait of yours that you love being busy? Or is that like a business acumen you learned at some point in your life? I think that I just enjoy, I enjoy being creative. I really, I enjoy exploring all aspects of our industry. When I first started cooking, I remember, you know, line cooking and really just like doing this one job every day. After about maybe a year of that, I was like, okay, this is really limiting my scope of what I want. You know, it's like, it's just too repetitive for me. What I really discovered was that, you know, I enjoyed all aspects of our business and all aspects of food and beverage, and just the exploration, the curation, the learning, you know, making mistakes, uh, learning from those mistakes. And so to me, it's, I, I think it's maybe just natural. It's just something I, right now is such an incredible time. From that standpoint, I just, the pandemic actually was able to give me a pause in restaurant operations and which I had wanted for some time. I'd been like doing it and I was like, oh, okay, now I'm forced to pause in, in, as far as like restaurants. It really allowed me to explore retail, food retail, my own personal like content that I want, that I wanted to produce as well, like video content and development. Lots to talk about on that front. And there's just, yeah, I've had a great time the last couple of years. I actually, here in my personal like cook studio space. I love so this. I built this this so year cool. and it's my own kind of like, Private hang. I live 10 minutes from here and just we do, we're doing, I call it on my, I launched a personal site as well. I call this shikutsu, which means foodie in Japanese. It's a place where I can get creative. I can be alone. I, I like that. I like some alone time as well. We just filmed 30, 31 minute pieces for reels and we're going to launch on TikTok too, just I think because I have to. And so they're 31 minute, I'm calling them JG's Essentials. So they're pantry items, they're like vinaigrettes, they're aiolis, they're rubs, marinades, and just things that yeah, I think are really applicable for our time. And then you'll watch them on Instagram Reels, and then there'll be a link back to my site where the recipe lives. And yeah, I'm going to start building like a nice culinary library for folks to come visit and yeah, enjoy. That's fantastic. So, so yes, you love being busy and can't yeah. sit still. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. And what's crazy now is like, I've been parenting as well for 20 years. My oldest is, she'll be, uh, she'll be 20 in a few weeks. And my youngest is 15 and they occupy such a big part of my life too. Big part of my time. And then, you know, you'll see as you get, as kids get older, that you start to get claw back a little of your own 
personal time as well. So I'm finding that I'm like, wow, wow, this is like a whole new world that's happening right now. The kids are a little more independent and I can, yeah, get some time back. So that's scary too at the same time, because now I can get myself into other things, which, you know, I think it's an exciting time in food in general. I think that we're eating differently. You know, there's just so many different ways for us to deliver as culinarians, deliver experiences to our guests and fans and whatnot. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I've got plenty of energy. Looking forward to the future for sure. Yes, love it. All right, let's go back a little bit. Take me back to Chicago. I'm sitting here now, taking back to Chicago, your old stomping grounds. How do you describe your childhood. Oh, childhood. Childhood was pretty intense. Both parents immigrated from Ecuador in the late 1960s. My dad went to uh, UIC. He went there. He was 19. He went to college there. That was his goal was to get a degree. And he brought my mom. I was born there in 72. But we very much lived this kind of immigrant lifestyle and at home, it was very much, okay, you know, we had you know, our Ecuadorian and Latin culture in the home front, but we're also assimilating to the U.S., to America, and trying to be American. And so that kind of dynamic, and growing up in Chicago, I grew up on the Northwest Side, like mostly around like Irving and Central, Belmont and Austin, Diversity and Cicero. Again, like, you know, my parents were like, they were check to check, month to month, trying to, you know, get it done, feed three boys. And along the way, they were teaching us their values and, and kind of, you know, call it Ecuadorian culture. And I really appreciated that we lived in Irish neighborhoods, Mexican neighborhoods, Polish neighborhoods, and got like a lot of that influence as well. So I think that kind of upbringing really paved my like inspirations for food. It really was like a, a big part of why I became so passionate about food because I had so much exposure to all these different cultures. That's cool. How do you think mom and dad being immigrants like impacted or influenced you growing up? Was it, as you said, like a value related thing or was there more beyond that? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, your work ethic, you know, they got up every day and were like, we're, we're, they were doing it. You know, my mom was basically uh, like an assembly, like factory worker. She'd go and like, you know, she did some quality control, but she was, you know, had a job and then had to come home, make a meal for everybody and then do it again the next morning. They, and so I saw that for years. My dad, again, I saw him do the same kind of become entrepreneurial. He's, you know, a lot of like my traits entrepreneurial traits, I think, came from him because he was always into something. He was an electronic service tech for a, a packaging machine making company called Triangle Packaging. They're up there and they're still there. They've been doing it for a long time. And I just, once he left Triangle, you know, he started his own business and started redoing new machines and reselling them. And, and so I saw his entrepreneurial acumen, you know, really start to take off and get into different businesses. And so that kind of work ethic that I had and their drive to like succeed and really just make it, yeah, it was, was, was very inspirational. And from a food standpoint, I mean, my gosh, we had pizza night, Friday nights, and that was like, Pretty much the extent of our like, you know, you know, big nights out from time to time we, we'd eat out, but it was mostly home home cooked meals. So a lot of like empanadas, ceviches, you know, my dad used to love to grill on the weekends. My grandma would come from Ecuador every summer to like visit us and she was an amazing cook. So yeah, I think it was it was a it was a wonderful experience from that standpoint. Did you say mom mostly cooked? My mom was like the weekday cook and then my dad used to like hone it on the weekends. 
And we used to go to, they're there, you're in Chicago, Andrew, the Jimenez, the uh, Mexican grocer. There was one on Fullerton in Central Park. Yeah, they had the taqueria there. They had the pork, the uh, Mexican butcher. I was in the back. And we would do our shop, pick up some carnitas, maybe some tacos on the way out the door. He would grill on the weekends. So that Still was there. Him. He had a, I'm looking it yes. up as we're talking. Oh, There's yeah. There's a few yeah. of them now. There's a few. Oh, yeah. It's a, they've got the experience like pretty, pretty well down. And that's, you know, I think my love for Mexican food was definitely inspired by Chicago. There's, you know, so many, you know, I mean, it is very much a melting pot, but certainly the Mexican culture that's in Chicago is pretty prevalent and they're great cooks. They're great. They're very passionate about food as well. You mentioned grandma. Did she live with you guys or was she around a lot? No, she was very much Ecuadorian. Would just come. My dad would bring her in the summer. Like, you know, she spent several summers, uh, it'd be like a one month or two month stretch. And this lady was, she was the matriarch of our family. She taught everybody how to cook. In Ecuador, it was very much a agricultural family. My, uh, my dad's grandfather had like a thousand acre farm. They raised cattle. They grew veggies and produce and yeah, they did it. And so that's the food they ate. She was an amazing cook. She had all these great ingredients in terms of like health and lifestyle. All of my aunts, uncles, certainly the older generation from my dad's side that lived this kind of agrarian move around lifestyle, work in the field sort of thing. They all lived until they're like hundreds, you know, like late 90s, early. They're all centenarians there. And all the food was like very, you know, unprocessed, very raw. My grandma actually, she used to come, she'd bring the cheese. She called it El Queso de Chone. Chone is a small like village in, in Manabi, the coastal area. And it was unpasteurized cow's milk cheese. She'd bring that and she'd bring almidon, which was almidon is yuca flour. Actually looks like cocaine. If you really look, if you're like, oh my God, she's smuggling like two pounds of cocaine. <laughs> How many times did she get stopped coming in? Yeah. <laughs> Most times she made it through. And so I grew up eating this like yuca bread with this cheese that she bring. And it was like, I could never replicate the flavor because... You know, the flour and just that raw cow's milk cheese had just had just enough foot in it. Not, not a ton. That sounds so good. Oh, yeah. What's the bread? Is it like that Brazilian cheese bread? Yeah. Or is that, it very, is. Very, very, very like, much. Almost like right gummy off. in a way, but. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, from stuff, the yuca. Man. So it's a gluten-free flour, yuca flour. And it's, yeah, it has, um, cheese is really important. The Brazilians usually make them a little smaller. They got pan de queso. Ours was had a little more structure, a little larger. I've been making it for years. So it's, yeah, it's great. And my daughter was, she became gluten-free, you know, some allergic reactions to gluten. And so we we started giving her, we, that was our bread. So, so, you know, a nice way to like combat the gluten doldrums. I love making them like homemade because they're not too difficult, but there is a really decent gluten-free frozen product that they sell in the stores. I think it's called like Brazi Bites or something. Brazi Bites. Brazi Bites. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. I would pound like 30 of those. I'd realize afterwards it's like, uh, all right, that was like 900 calories. (laughs) (laughs) I got to hit you up for Ecuadorian version. Sure. So were you helping out in the kitchen like as a kid? Yeah. I mean, that was it. I was a chubby kid. Loved the kitchen, loved food, loved helping. Really, you know, my mom would come home at 4.30 and she was like, okay, one hour meal. Might have been where I got my iron chefing from because I think she was just like moving 
and was like, Jose, do this, you know, pick some cilantro, you know, help me smash the potatoes. And then she also enjoyed baking too. So like after dinner, we do a little baking together, a cheesecake, German chocolate cake, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever she could find. And she was always, you know, I think coming from Ecuador, right? She'd go to the grocery store. They'd be like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. There's like so many options here. And, you know, there's good and bad to that, you know? So we would also, I think, have fruity pebbles or lucky, Ch- you know, we have all the shit, Captain Crunch. I'm like, mom, hey, you know, <laughs> it was a great time and certainly paved the way for me. Did you start working in kitchens in Chicago? I started at a Italian banquet hall and I'm not sure if it's still there. It was on Oak Park in Diversity and I'm not as a, not as a cook, but as a, as a busboy, it was called Pizzaferros. I was 13 when I started there. I, I had a paper route when I was eight years old. I started earning early. I was, parents were like, ends me. We're going to send you guys to Catholic school. There's tuition to deal with. And so it was, there wasn't a lot of luxe items happening. So I'm like, you know what? If I want those, you know, Air Jordans, I'm really going to have to go out and earn them. So um, worked at an Italian bank hall, which was actually really cool. I mean, in terms of just, that was my first experience in the, call it like food service and christenings and weddings and Italian inspired meals, masticcioli, linguine, antipasti, all these kind of banquet, like chicken cordon blues. But I uh, just kind of was on the service side of it. And I got my first restaurant job, Kendall. I got enrolled there at Kendall College, a culinary school. When it was at Evanston, one of my classmates was a banquet chef at the Signature Room on the 95th floor of the Hancock. So he was like, hey, Jose, you know, they need a garmage here. You want to come and get into it? And that was my first exposure was there. And that was, uh, that was awesome. It was, again, another like, you know, learning moment, enjoying all aspects of service, whether it was like catering or a la carte and learning to be a garmage cook. It's a really special time. Did you go to Kendall right out of high school? I didn't. I went to junior college for a couple of years. I went to Harper and Wright. I was, you know, honestly, happy. I had no no calling. I was, I was really like, okay, I'm trying to figure out. I finished high school and I was an athlete in high school, played football and wrestled. I was probably just way too much into my own self and teenage, teenage years at that time and looked up and I was like, okay, high school's over. What, where am I going? What am I? (laughs) And so I said, let me go to junior college, try to like, you know, pick a path. I was heading to university of Illinois for my junior year and just stumbled into, I was lifeguarding at Foster Avenue beach. One of my, uh, lifeguard mates was like, Hey, if you, if you checked out like Kendall, you know, we were talking, he was kind of in the same boat, you know, cause I was in between like, okay, do I go get a business degree at, at U of I, or should I, you know, get a vocation, just get a trade to start earning because, you know, day to day. And so I got to Kendall and I just noticed the uniforms, the crispness of them, you know, the brigade. And, and there was something about that that called me because I knew that I needed discipline at that time. I needed like structure. And I enrolled like that summer. I was like, hey, this sounds like a plan. And, and when I got there, I actually didn't know that I had cooking talent. I had no, no idea. I hadn't cooked anywhere. I hadn't done anything. All I know is that I started uh, in our block of classes and in our block, I just started, I was like outperforming some of my classmates. I was getting really intrigued by the ingredients. We were French classically trained there, which was awesome. It gave us, you know, really good background on just cooking in general. So yeah, that really started my journey into, you know, the professional cooking world. That's amazing. What was your plan after culinary school? After culinary school, see, the thing that was great about and what I still like really love about our industry is that there's just so much that you can really explore and do. And when I got there is that I had 
and no clues into the industry other than my banqueting at Pizzaferro's like when I was a kid. So I got there and I was like, oh, wow, I could, I could become, I can go work in hotels. I can work abroad, you know, go to like, you know, four star fine dining restaurants and really take that path. I was like, oh man, this is just amazing. I've got tons of options to choose from. So after school, I actually really wanted to go to France because of you know, the inspiration I had there. But I realized that, you know, language barrier might be tough. So knowing Spanish, I said, I wanted to just get European influence. And during that time, so we're talking about like the mid nineties, right? 1996 is when I graduated from school. During that time, the States had like some very like trend forward restaurants. Europe was still top of the class in terms of culinary, let's call it icons, or just really like in our industry, it just felt like that was the place to be, to go learn. I think during that time, Ferran Adria was was just getting, and there was uh, quite a bit going on over there. So I decided to go to Spain through my internship coordinator at Kendall. He had a connection with a, he was a priest who owned restaurants and hospitality training centers in Sevilla and Madrid and uh, in Puerto Banus on the south. So he was said, hey, we'll maybe uh, be able to take you to go on a, like a, an exchange, you know, a work work program over there. And so, yeah, I, I, I met Juan and his chef and he's like, yeah, come on over. This is what we do. You know, we give you like a hundred bucks a month, but you get your room and board taken care of and meals at the restaurants. So I was like, okay, I think I can make that work. And somehow I think I left with, with like a thousand bucks in my pocket and made it through almost like six months of just like, just <laughs> making it stretch. And really that's where I learned, you know, truly Spanish culture and cuisine. In the restaurant I worked, there were chefs from all over Spain, from the North, the South, the Basque region. And I really under started to understand regionality and Spanish cooking. And I think the best part for me was every day we had family meal and each cook made their own version of paella. So I had a lot of paella over there. I got to experience it, but yeah, it was hugely, you know, valuable. And that was, that was my next, that was like right after school, I just jumped right into that. And you, so you were there six months, you said? Yeah, six months. And then I, you came back, did you go back to Chicago? No, my girlfriend, before I left, I had said, hey, you know, I'm going to go here, see what I was still pretty young, yeah, young, young kid in early 20s, see how it goes. She came to visit me at the end of my tenure over there and was like, we traveled a bit. And she said, hey, Jose, you know, my family's in New York. I'm going to take a job over there. We, you know, will you come back with me? And I was like, hey, you know, okay, that sounds, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> you know, New York is, I felt like in Spain while I was learning, I was having like, a really good time just being there and enjoying it. And I did have the opportunity to go to Sevilla and continue on with Juan and his team. But, you know, I was convinced, pleasantly convinced to like come back. And I think that was another like pivotal decision that was made in terms of driving my career and my influence. So where'd you work when you went to New York and how'd you get to Philly? So, yeah. So I got to New York, I picked up a Zagat guide and I looked at like, okay, who has like 28 and above like food ratings? I dropped my resume off at pretty much, you know, La Bernadette, Danielle, and a few others, Jean George's place. And I think uh, Rainbow Room at the time was uh, Waldi Maloof and they had a high rating. I really didn't know a ton about you know, the New York scene. And, and so I went there and I met Waldy and I met his team and I was like, oh, this is great. They paid well, it was a union house. I was like, okay, this sounds like a great first experience in New York. I could start, you know, don't, don't forget, I was making a hundred bucks a month prior to that. 
in, in Spain. So I got there. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to get like a real paycheck. Got there, worked my butt off. The Rainbow Room was, at the time, they had three services. They had pre-theater, dinner, and supper. And as a chef, as a line chef, you're expected to do all of them. And they, every seating was packed. So I was like drenched at the end of each seating. I'm like, okay, <laughs> time to change. Spent a few years. So I was at the Rainbow Room. I was at the Four Seasons when I was at 5757 with a chef named Susan Weaver. Great person. And then I worked at a place called Boulevard. Uh, which was on 60th and 3rd, and it was an Argentinian grill and Peruvian ceviche house, way ahead of its time. And, you know, I got ascended to like chef de cuisine after these experiences. I had my first salary position, but you know what? I didn't do a great job. It was my first chef position. I wasn't like making it happen. So eventually I got fired. I was very upset. I was like, hey, what the hell? This is not supposed to happen. So at the time, I was like at this pivotal moment, and I'm like, you know what? I'm probably just going to go back to Chicago now. I think it's time. I've had my fun, been in Spain, been in New York. Okay, it's time to get home. I said, I'm just going to try and try one person, one chef that I want to work for here. I didn't want to work for anybody else. Let me go look up Douglas Rodriguez, who was uh, at the time he was at Patria, and he was just about to open Chicama. And uh, Douglas was, you know, at that time, really, you know, one of the greatest Latin chefs in the country, and he was an amazing mentor and friend. So I worked for him. I opened Chicama and Pipa, his Spanish place. And then he had an opportunity with Steve Starr to come open Alma de Cuba in Philly. And he's like, I was in his stable of chefs. And he's like, hey, Jose, do you want to come to Philadelphia and be my chef at Alma de Cuba? And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Let's do it. I knew that my, ta- my tenure in New York, five years, I was either- It's a long time. Anyway. Yeah, it's time to go. <laughs> yeah, time, time to go. <laughs> Too much fun. Too much fun, too many late nights. And, and so, yeah, it was time to you know, continue on the career path. So that was my transition to Philly. And, you know, working for Steve Starr, an amazing restaurateur, a great business person, entrepreneur, designer. I mean, really great environment in his restaurants. So I had him and I had Douglas, my like flavor master, flavor mentor that I was, you know, in their world for about four years, which was great. So that was the early part of 2000. That's cool. That's before Douglas went to Miami. I think so. It was. It was. That's super cool. So you go to Philly. How was that adjustment? Okay. New York to Philly. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I went from, I lived in Queens and I live on the Lower East Side while I was in New York. And then I got to Philly and I'm like, oh, I got a nice apartment in Rittenhouse Square, like the prime prime spot in Philly. I could walk literally four blocks to Alma. And I was like, oh my God, this is this is living over here. I yeah, think, right? <laughs> I get crushed in New York for years. So how long were you at Alma? Did you go from Alma to opening your own place? No. So that was again another learning curve. I was at Alma for two years. Then I was kind of like hungry to do something. I had gotten Alma like to a good success. I'll give you a funny funny story. It's just the way it works in this business. So Douglas and I got there. And we were doing really the similar food that we were doing in Chicama. And there was another chef here in Philly, uh, like a Latin chef, who was Guillermo Pernod. You know, if you come to Philly, man, it's like Philly is like, there's a lot of like Philly pride, like the whole, you know, sports culture phenomena. They were not rooting for us. There was a lot of like anti like New York sentiment that was going on. So we get there and the food is just not like resonating fully. We're getting some like bad, we're getting dinged up a little bit from the local reviewers. And Steven's like, guys, 
you're not going to make this work. I'm going to turn into a Chinese restaurant tomorrow. So, and it really was like, oh my God, I just moved my life here. But it was good in that it just forced me to like dig deep and like really rework the menu. Douglas and I did that and got it on track and then just started humming after that. But it was, you know, that was initially the early experience. So we got Alma going and it was like performing well, doing well, good reviews. I was starting to get a local following here. That's when I started to realize, okay, you know, I need, you know, I think I'm more of a multi-unit guy, multi-concept. So I pitched Steven uh, a Mexican concept and a Spanish tapas concept. And he was like, Jose, I love your Spanish tapas concept, but they'll never eat pork in Philadelphia. So you're, you're off. You're, you're not, that's not gonna, which was, yeah, I didn't, you know, Hey, I didn't, I obviously didn't believe that. And so we did Mexican at Elvez together in 2003. So, and then I kind of multi-united both things. I was overseeing Alma and Elvez from basically 2000, end of 2000 through 2004 into 2005. And that's when I opened Amada which was uh, our Spanish tapas restaurant in, in Philly. How was Douglas with you opening up another unit with Steven? I think initially he might've been like thrown off, but it also like in his true nature, very supportive, at least outwardly. I mean, inside he might've been like, what the hell? But outwardly to me, he was like, hey, yeah, you know, I just, I have a kind of a, I have that little, that drive that is, has existed. And, you know, I had it, you know, I was in town and I, and it wasn't, I was like, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let Alma fall down. I'm going to manage them both. And really for me, it was from a business perspective. Now I'm looking at two P&Ls, two like businesses and how they're running, what's affecting each one. And, you know, the good thing about Steve's organization at the time was it was, it was like, it was a business very like, you know, Hey, you gotta like, you're not just like cooking over here. He gave us autonomy to run the business. He expected us to do it in that fashion. So that was good. Did you leave star and open Amada or did he help you open Amada? I left star. So he, you know, at the time I remember I went to him and I said, Hey, I've, I've got this location on Chestnut street that I like. And I want to do my Spanish tapas restaurant. What do you think? He's like, ah, oh, Jose, I don't know about that location. And you know what? We're going to do five more Alvezes. And I, you know, I'll make you the corporate chef and you can do it. And I was, I'm sorry. I would love to, but thank you. I'm flattered, but had a dream. And the dream was always from the time I call it entered culinary school to that moment was I just want to open my own restaurant. Just want to do that. That's that. That was the goal. And so. Yeah, made that happen. Love it. Okay, so I once ate at five of your restaurants in one night. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Said no one ever except me. I think it was Amada, Distrito, JG Domestic, Chifa, potentially, and Village Whiskey. Oh, wow. Oh, man. I think I started like 5, (laughs) 5 p.m. I started. But I remember when I asked you where to start my evening without hesitation, you had said Amada, likely because like it's your baby. So you've mentioned Amada, Spanish tapas, but it's your first restaurant. So just tell us a little more why the name and how did Philadelphians take to it when it opened? Yeah. So Amada, Spanish concept, actually, when I finished at the end of cooking school, they asked us to create a business plan for a restaurant. And so it was Spanish tapas restaurant. And it's the place in Chicago, the Spanish place, Cafe Iberico. You've been to that? It's, I mean, it's been there a long time. It's on LaSalle. Anyway, that was experiential for me back then. Fun, festive, small plates. And so at that time, it was great. So I felt as a chef, I was limited in the appetizer entree 
realm of like format, right? I, I really, I had a problem with it. I was like, you know, it's such a big commitment as a diner, even myself as a diner to be like stuck with this entree. So I always loved the idea of small plates. And naturally, you know, Spain has that kind of that pedigree. So I'm like, okay, this format works. I love Spanish food. I was in Spain and the name was easy. I, I named it after my grandma. Her nickname was Mamita Amada, which means uh, beloved. You know, it just kind of rolls off your tongue. It creates this, and it still does. The restaurants, you know, Amada's, uh, we just turned 17. We'll be 18 coming up here in 2023. And yeah, it just has still to this day, has this aura energy about it. When you walk in, that's just feels good. It feels warm, feels inviting. I'm excited because I'm opening an Amada out in the suburbs here in Pennsylvania, Wayne, Pennsylvania, Wayne Radner. And yeah, the brand is still, it just resonates. You know, it, it hits so many different categories and I can't tell you how many folks have said, oh, I got engaged there. It's like special anniversary or whatever. It, it's a special place. So if folks come to Philly, yeah, come see us. That's cool. So you've opened a number of restaurants since Amada, probably at least 10, I'm guessing. Looking back, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? It's funny. It's one thing to be creative, right? And to be able to do, have the ability to create and do. It's another thing to be able to create and then master those things that you create, like really master them and also paint them and sustain them. That's the other aspect of it. So when you're in your creative mode, you're like, oh man, sky's the limit. Let's go. Let's do this. But, you know, knowing now that there's a certain amount of respect that I have for mastery of one thing, or two things. And this day, back in those days, I was just very, had this, I wanted to get my ideas out there. I wanted to get my concepts out there. Get really, And my strategy was, well, if I can recruit and train talent that can keep up with my you know, standards and my vision, then not a problem. We could do it. But that's challenging. Yeah. So that's the one thing I would tell my old self, hey, be careful. It's a lot and it's a lot to like really like do them all like the way you want to do them. In fact, even now, you know, we've gone through this period of, of COVID and, uh, you know, we've had a lot of like really talented people in the industry leave because of uncertainty, because it's tough, better benefits, less stress, better work environment, all, all these things that kind of come with it. And I'm going through our restaurants and it's, it keeps, still keeps me up at night. And I'm like, oh, like, uh, we really got to roll our sleeves up here, continue to train, continue to mentor, continue to foster like what we're doing, because otherwise, you know, quality slips. So it's really, it's, it's slippery slope. Interesting. One of our early seasons, we talked with Rich Melman, who I'm sure you're familiar with as a Chicago guy, but you know, he was making some interesting points about growth from like one to two restaurants versus like going from two to 10 restaurants. Was it harder for you? having that first one of your own and opening up a second or having two and scaling in a bigger way? I think for me, because I had the initial like multi-unit experience having Alma de Cuba and Alves, two felt very manageable and three felt okay too within the city footprint and all that. I think when we started getting into other states and moving, you know, we were in Scottsdale, Arizona. We were in Palm Springs, California. We were, obviously, I was in Chicago for a long time, which didn't feel like I had a great team there. But I think that scaling and kind of maintaining the brands and the integrity, that's when it became more 
more challenging. And I remember like coming home from the airport on a, a visit to one of the restaurants to be like, you know, not sure how I feel about about that situation. So, you know, and I think some chefs have a can look at it and say, well, it's that's just part of the business. Yeah, I don't know that I view it that way. Anymore. Interesting. So like mentor wise, I guess, you know, you talk about Douglas a little bit. We talked about Steven. I'm guessing there was others along the way, potentially. But are there any resources you'd recommend for like a young cook that you wish you had or that you did have and use? Yeah. I mean, well, I can tell you, I can tell you right now, we currently have, and I'm not going to answer your question directly, but I'm going to tell you what's happening in a, a call it like a mentorship capacity. So at Volver, our Forbes five star restaurant, at the Kimmel Center. We closed it during COVID because it's really, you know, a function of the orchestra, the Performing Arts Center, and they were closed. So when we reopened it, we looked at the chef in residency program. So we looked at a diverse background of chefs, also chefs that have been affected by COVID. Maybe they had a smaller place or that was affected and they had to close or up and coming chefs, maybe someone who's you know really like on the rise. And so we started the chef and residency program. That's this is we're into our second season. Each chef comes for eight weeks. They provide their recipes to us. We, our staff cooks them. They're not obligated to be there. They come when they want and they hang and do whatever. There's a line item on there for them, for guests who donate to either their next cause or their restaurant. Our foundation matches it. It's a win-win. But for me, it's a couple things. I get to meet, you know, some really talented younger folks, I get to understand their food and cuisine. So this year we have, we have a Polish chef, we have a, a Filipino chef. Our first big group, Harley, was he cooks what he calls black folk style cooking. So really food from his grandma. And so that's from a mentoring standpoint, I'm really enjoying getting to like meet these guys and talk to them about, hey, you know, like I'm open to you and like, let's talk through your business plan or what, you know, what, what you need. And yeah, I think when I started, I had no, I had pretty much figured out I'm out. How do I negotiate a lease? How do I engage my contractors? How do I build a restaurant? There was not a lot of mentoring or resources available. So I think that's a niche. That's a need. And, you know, Andrew, maybe... Maybe that's our next business model. What do you think? Let's do it. Do it, man. <laughs> do it. So another thing I'm always fascinated about with you and your concepts is how you, and you've talked about this a tad, like weaving various cultures and cuisines into your restaurants while staying true like to your roots. I mentioned I ate at Chifa, which RIP, I love, love that place, man, which was a Peruvian Chinese concept. But I didn't realize the extent of like your love of Japan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is, that's, that's special. Well, it came from when I was on season two of Next Iron Chef, the kind of semifinals were filmed in Japan. And, you know, so we spent about two weeks, like just filming, battling, but also taking in the culture, which was amazing. And then I like, maybe like two years later, I took my kids when they were smaller. I said, Hey, I want, I want to bring you guys to this place. So we went to Kyoto in Japan. It was a very culinary and culturally driven tour for about 12 days as well. And so, and I've been a, a culinary traveler for years. I've, I've always enjoyed that part of it. But really the appreciation for ingredients that Japanese culture has, they have the best strawberries, the best mangoes. I actually bought a $300 mango there. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> so 
Yeah. And I think what I also appreciate about it is like there's specialization. So if you're going to get soba, you just get soba. If you're going to get tempura, you just, the guy's just only making tempura. So I appreciate it. Still really appreciate the food culture. And, and it's funny when we opened Chifa, I went to Lima and Cusco in search of Chifa, right? This kind of fusion of Chinese and Peruvian cuisines. You know, what I found was like Chinese restaurants, just making Chinese food with some Peruvian ingredients. So I'd really, so I had to come back and actually make that fusion here. But while I was there, I did discover Nikai cuisine, which was a fusion of Peruvian and Japanese cuisine. And there was several restaurants that practiced it. Amazing. That's Nobu's inspiration as well. That's, you know, part of his, his story. I'm a big fan of uh, Chef Nobu. It's out there, you know, I think, but it, 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 you, know, you never know. You've opened a bunch of restaurants. You've closed some. How do you handle a restaurant closing? Obviously, it's not easy. Oh, that's, that's tough. That's really hard. What I've come to understand, and I've, I struggled, struggled with it for a long time, because there's an emotional connection that you have with these citizen restaurants. It's not like a, for me, at, at least it's never like a, it was always impactful. And I think over time you learn to learn and grow and create some inner growth from that experience that help you in your future endeavors. Right. So you just, I think each of those experiences, when it does happen, you never want it to happen, but it happens and nothing lasts forever. And we're, we're in a really, you know, the average restaurant lasts maybe two or three years. If you get to the one year mark, you're like, yes, I made it, you know? <laughs> so, but you know, I think the thing that keeps me going is some of the, you know, the legacy spots we've had that are like, you know, seven, a modest 17 years, uh, Village Whiskey's 12 years. It just, and that kind of like it reassures me somehow it gives me some comfort, but it's a tough business. It's, it's crazy because I've had some concepts that I'm like, this is really good. It's really, but location and variables and other dynamics that are out of your control. Sometimes, I mean, those weigh into it. So what I've learned, and sometimes I haven't learned it, but like, you got to hedge your bets, man. Get, get a great location. Get something that has walking traffic. You know, and actually, Cappy, you know, our current business model, our current day is uh, I'm looking at smaller footprints. If I'm going to make, I'm not doing any big box restaurants. That's only going to be in We'll do them, but they have to be really you know, select locations with good partners and you know, lots of you know density. But I'm digging like the smaller footprints. I partnered with a group out of Louisiana, Ballard Brands, Ballard Hospitality. They're three brothers who I really enjoy. Their company, it's, and that's one thing. Your partners, you want to make sure you, you have good good partners, people you like to be with. And they're a franchise company. They have PJ's Coffee and Wild Wings, and so. I love that, you know, they could maybe help shape my ideas into these franchisable brands. And actually, before we, we joined forces, I had Buena Onda, which was my model for a fast casual taqueria. And I'm really happy to say this year in 2022, we got it into a franchise mode. We've opened four more company stores and we have five franchises that have been sold. So we're super excited about that. And yeah, and so that's, that's the space I'd like to be in and continue to foster that kind of, you know, channel my creativity, channel that into something that's, yeah, sustainable. And that's that, that'd be my advice to give to anybody out there and from a culinary, like a chef creative cul culinary person. If you can get to scalability, that's the sweet spot where you want to be in. 
That's very cool. I love that. I was going to ask you about openings and your favorite part, but I think you just hit upon that. So I feel good about it. You talked about your kids earlier. How is Jose the chef versus Jose the dad? Oh, I'm playing. I play mind games with these guys all the time. You have no idea. I'm in there. I've been in there since they've been like five or six years. They started going to school. I'm like, guys, got to get A's at school. What can I tell you? That's just it. You're right. So no, you know, I've really enjoyed being a dad. Love it. And you know, it's funny fatherhood, even as the kids get older, you're at least from my perspective, I love just being a part of their lives, helping them form decisions, good decisions, using the knowledge that that I have a great partner, their mom, Beatrice, who's the two of us have really formed it. We've had a good team with the kids. And, you know, at the end of the day, you want two really good humans that will contribute back to society, will give back and serve their communities. And so, yeah, that, that feels really good. And I think part of the things that make you a good business person, make you a good chef, apply. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, you know, the perfectionism that I look for in the kitchen doesn't necessarily carry over to to the kids. So, you know, that's one thing I, I think I learned along the way. But yeah, it's been great. And I'm just so happy for them looking forward to their future years. Are they into food? They are not. My daughter, Olivia, is she's a psychology major. So she's a very, she, which I think is great because there's such a, to me, such a need for, uh, there is currently and there will be for mental health in the world. And so I love that. And she's using her natural skill, her talent, which is reading the room. She comes in and she knows exactly how I'm feeling, if something's wrong or if something's going on. You don't have to say anything. So I think that's, that's great. It's a great path for the second year in college. At, she's at Loyola of New Orleans. And then my son on this is he's an athlete, 6'4", 200 pounds somehow. I'm bare, I think I'm, I was, I'm listed as 5'10". I might be pushing down to 5'9 <laughs> and a half hours. So he's a sophomore in high school and we're on this journey, this soccer journey with him that seems to be going in the right path. We'll see how it goes. What position is so, he? So yeah, it's, he's a center back. So he plays, he's like, my dad calls him La Muralla, like the back wall. And, you know, we've been kicking the ball since he was two years old. And so, yeah, these years now, like there's a lot of, you know, decision making on, okay, club, college, pro roots and academies. And it's, it's fun. And again, I think at the end of the day, it's more about, okay, just let's have fun with this. How do you find balance with like your work life and your family? It's an awareness and consciousness. And I think that doesn't happen. didn't happen for me right away. I think we're always evolving. You know, I speak of inner growth and that sort of thing. And I've, I've been like over the past few years, really doing a lot of like, just kind of looking, looking within and be like, okay, am I, I mean, maybe do some work on myself, right. I'm, and being aware and being more conscious. So I think when you can get there, it really helps the work-life balance. And I like hi- highly recommend that. Meditation, yoga, whatever you need to check in with yourself regularly is good. And just understanding, I think when you can get there, you can have more better perspective on the people in your inner circle in your life and what they need, and what they're looking for. And I think that's been really helpful to understand, you know, what at the end of the day, I would never want my kids to be like, dad was great, but his guy was never home. It wasn't around. So I, and it's again, checking in. And so I've always, I mean, for, I mean, the last 20 years, the weekends has always been family time for me. Holidays, 
I'm sorry. It's a great industry. This is, I love what I do, but I want to, I don't want to miss those moments. And so I think prioritization really plays a big part into it and it depends on who you are. And for me, it's always been prioritizing my kids and family and then working backwards from there. I haven't asked this question in a while to a guest, but I think you're a good person to ask. What is your point of view on awards and accolades? Awards and accolades. I think that, I think if they happen organically, that's great. I think if you're striving and pushing for them, maybe that's like energy not well spent. So I can give you a good example when I didn't have that perspective. So I got nominated for the James Beard Award in 2007. And I went, Best Chef Mid-Atlantic, went up to the went up to New York. Didn't win, and I was disappointed. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, like, this is something I really want. I, I got to win. And so you know, the next year, I was doing whatever I could. There's really not much you can do other than just hoping and wanting. And so in 08, I was very excited to be nominated again. I said, okay, I'm, I feel good about my contender list. Like, I think I got these guys. Went up, I brought a party bus brought all my staff, was like ready to like celebrate. And I lost. And that party bus experience afterwards was so sad. <laughs> it was so like, everyone was like, and then funny enough, in 2009, when I did win, I wasn't even at the ceremony. I was in filming in Japan, Next Iron Chef. And it was like, it was a phone call because of the time difference at six in the morning. And it was my brother saying, hey, you won. And I was like, okay, thank you. And so he accepted the award on my behalf, but it taught me some humility. And yeah, humil- humility is good too. Yeah. That's interesting. Speaking of Next Iron Chef, why did you choose to do that? And are you glad you did? I chose to do it. No, I wouldn't say not really by, ultimately I made the choice, but it was very fortuitous that I got, I was, the producers reached out to me in 07 and said, hey, you you auditioned for season one of Next Iron Chef. And I had not been in the TV world at all, really up until that point. And I um, was excited, you know, as a chef, it's like, you know, my, one of my favorite chefs was watching growing up was, uh, you know, at the, the beginning, the height of like Food Network was, you know, Emerald was on, Mario was on. And it was like, man, these guys are really like doing it. It was like that. And that's when I was at Kendall. So it was exciting to get that phone call. I get the call. I don't make the cut. And they said, come back and compete against Bobby Flay. So just a regular Iron Chef episode. And I beat Bobby. And I just got the bug after that. I was like, this is so cool. This is so exciting to be cooking on camera and doing my craft, what I do, and to be able to share it with more people than just the restaurant goers was amazing. And so, yeah, when I got asked to compete and to, to audition in 09 and made the cut to compete on Next Iron Chef, I was, I was just beside myself. I was really just excited. I think being on TV is a very, it's a fortunate thing for our industry. It's great to be on and I'm always flattered and humbled by it. And uh, looking back, it was one of the hardest things I ever did too. It was like, I remember like having the butterflies before my battle, like being super, super nervous, but also like really just enjoyed the exhilaration of competing. Would you encourage a cook to, to do it if they had the opportunity? I think that it's such a different skill set than cooking in a restaurant or being a restaurant chef, or it just requires a whole different mindset and mentality. And 
I think I'd mentioned to you earlier, Andrew, I was, you know, I was an athlete growing up. I, I played football and I wrestled and I was just very competitive, had a competitive nature about me. Having that background, it just was a natural fit. So if you have that, it's really, it's fun, you know, and I think it also, it pushes creativity, pushes your mind to think about food a different way. And yeah, sometimes, sometimes, you know, I think some of the challenges we got at Iron Chef, like towards the end of the run, it was like battle pretzel or battle peanut butter and jelly. And I'm like, what am I going to do with that, guys? Come on. what are you, You're killing me over here. <laughs> so interesting. You mentioned the sports thing. It, it's come up time and time again. I guess it's not that surprising when you think about it. Thomas Keller mentioned it because he was like a big baseball guy, like playing Little League and stuff. And then this season, Daniel Hum mentioned it because he was, I feel like he was a professional cyclist, potentially, if not, was well on his way there. But it's probably organization, teamwork, competitiveness, probably all these things. It's all of it. And it just, I'm happy my son's learning a team sport, even basketball and stuff, because it teaches you a lot of responsibility, a lot of looking out for others in the best interest of the team. You know, my son has from time to time has been like, oh, you know that I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm like, hey, dude, that's sorry. You got you made a commitment. This is where we're at. And so, yeah, there's so many good lessons for youth and it carries forward. Get your rest, Andres, and, and eat Livy's plant-based food yeah. and, you know, <laughs> there get you go. some energy. How's that going? That's going well. Is and it's like diet now, mostly? She's uh, gluten-free and uh, lactose intolerant. And so the last few years of high school, we were cooking that food all the time. And I was like, hey, you know, you, this stuff, you know, can really taste good if you, you know, just apply some, some knowledge to it and great ingredients. And I did some plant-based work. I think we were talking about in the retail world, which I'm, I'm super psyched about it. There's a brand that definitely a, a collaborative brand called Casa Verde. It's shelf stable, Latin inspired plant-based meals. And we've been, we launched it this year. So you get like, let's say chickpeas al pastor or uh, red lentil mole, all hundred percent organic ingredients, all plant-based. And yeah, we should be launching in retail stores this fall. Wait, is Casa Verde the brand you partner with? Or is that the name of the brand you're coming out with? That's the name of the brand I partnered with. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Yes. So Casa Verde. Yeah. We talked about all these different, I'm so intrigued with retail and like applying all these lessons and recipes and things that I've learned over the years into that market. Cause I think there's, it's still a pretty big wide open space and it's not as like glitzy or as exciting. And some might think that I think it's really exciting to be able to do really good meals for home consumers. And so, yeah. Yeah. it's awesome. I want to touch on philanthropy for sure. You're very philanthropic and the podcast celebrates social impact and philanthropy. You know, every episode, love learning how different chefs and restaurateurs do it, whether it's a, a personal foundation, a, a, another organization or cause they support. And they all truthfully have it their own way of how they do it. But I'm super psyched to touch on this with you because I know in 2011, you co-founded the Garces Foundation. And I want to let you jump into that and just you know start with why did you start it? Yeah, so we started it because, so I started with Beatrice Garces. And, you know, as a chef, you get asked to do a lot of philanthropic missions. And I had been doing those for several years. And I said, you know what, I really, I want to be able to like touch this a little bit more. I want to be able to like participate. And th that was my thinking 
going into it, but really there was an event that occurred. There was a, a butcher who worked for us. He'd worked for me for a couple of years. His name was Felipe Lopez. He one day just didn't show up to work. And then the second day came and we were like, hey, what's going on with Felipe? We went to his house and because we were concerned, no one had heard from him. And he was there, he was, he was sick. And he was just like, chef, I'm not feeling good. And I'm like, hey, why don't you go to the doctor? Like, let's, let's get you. He's like, well, I don't want to be deported. I don't want to go back to Mexico. I'm, that's going to happen. So we thought, well, that's, that's really, that's a problem. We've got, yeah, you know, certainly an undocumented immigrant workforce that is here. They're doing the jobs that a lot of Americans don't want to do. And it's just, that's part of our reality. And so Felipe, we got him seen and he, you know, he was stage four cancer and unfortunately passed and could have been, had he been diagnosed earlier, he probably would have survived and got treatment Whatnot. So that was a pretty tragic day for us. I mean, again, we had spent some time like caring for him and trying to reach out to his family members. And yeah, it was pretty sad. And that was kind of the launch of it was like, you know, this community really needs some help, whether it's really health. Health is where it began. So we started these community health days where the community could come in, they would get free dental, diabetes, cholesterol, just overall health checkups. There's volunteer doctors and dentists at Beatrice's dental office that would come in. And then she also provided ongoing dental care for them at, a, at like no cost. So that was our first program. And then we started a uh, an EREL program. So it's see-through job training. So really teaching restaurant workers how to speak English, how to like, you know, English is a second language. We got them hooked up with recently um, laptops and computers so that they can connect to the internet and start to like, you know, really assimilate and like, you know, grow. We, you know, our hope was that prep cooks and dishwashers could become sous chefs and executive chefs or servers by just learning the English language. And so those have been our two core programs. And then when the pandemic hit, we started a food pantry program that was, we partnered with a local favorite produce company, Giordano's Produce. And we started building boxes out, food boxes. And yeah, it was a box had a meal for four for a week with culturally appropriate food. And yeah, we've to date, and we started it right, right at the beginning of the pandemic, like I think like April or May of 2020, and then have been serving them since once a week, uh, every Thursday. And yeah, and I think we've served over 15,000 boxes so far. So yeah, it's definitely, you know, I think it's really, a, you know, service, it feels, not only does it feel good, but it's it's just feels like right for, for the moment we're in and continue to grow it. Actually, our, we're excited that with COVID, the EREL program became virtual. We were in person. We were 100 students. We had a classroom in Philadelphia and South Philly where the community lives. And now that we have our programming, so we, we did a year of virtual learning for everybody. We feel like it can expand to other states or other communities pretty easily. And that's kind of the goal goal we have coming up. I love that. That's great. Congrats on all that. We'll put a link to the foundation in the episode notes. So if you're listening right now, you'll find that in the podcast player that you're listening on, but we'll also put it on our beyondtheplatepodcast.com uh, website. All right, let's uh, let's do a quick speed round and then a little closing question. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Number one, what'd you have for dinner last night? Dinner last night, I had pizza from Hook and Master, a pizza place here in Fishtown. So I've got, and listen, you Chicago. So I've got a tavern style. I've got Chicago pan and I've got Brooklyn style, three styles of crust. And I'm serving 
the inspired by the bear on Hulu, Italian beef on Sundays. Hey, so, hey. Check it out. <laughs> Steve Delinsky from Chicago, if you're listening, there's some Philly pizza for you to go try. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Cumin. I love the smell of spice in general. I can go into an Indian kitchen and be very happy for a long period of time. So yes, but cumin is something that's it's distinct, it's unique and toasted. And I'm like, just not an overabundance of it, just enough to hit it. And that, yeah, love it. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. I guess maybe trash. <laughs> that <laughs> was last week's episode back. too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not in the kitchen. Well, I guess by, yeah, you know, well, here's a grease trap. Boom. There we go. If your grease trap is not like, hey, guys, what's going on here? Time to clear that thing. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Not being cleanly and disorganization. I just can't take it. In fact, it's why, Andrew, I'm going to show you again. That's why I have this. See what's going on here? It's very type A. I just want things in their right place where they are. I want them clean. And so, I don't know if I knew this you know, about you. Um, yeah, I, just, I have <laughs> just a quick story. My, when I went into one of the kitchens yesterday and I saw one of my chefs and trying to food. He's like, chef, how'd you like everything? I'm like, everything was great. Thank you. However, I went back to your kitchen and, you know, listen, we've talked about this a couple of times. Come on. You know, clean, organize every, you know, and it just, you run a better operation. So yeah, absolutely. What makes you happy in the kitchen? What makes me happy in the kitchen is just, I think, great teamwork and camaraderie and seeing that also really just makes the food better, makes our service better. So if I see a team that's working well and they're aligned and they're, and that doesn't always happen. And sometimes you got to put work into that. But yeah, like good teamwork really makes me happy. And last, is there a certain go-to snack in your pantry? Ooh, go-to snack, go-to snack. Well, it's changed over time. I mean, I'm a sucker for a bag of Doritos any time of the day. But yeah, I think I've been doing some, a good amount of like granola type snacks. I've been, you know, that really thinking about, you know, health and wellness. So I don't know. Yeah. Granola bites, granola, like just oats in general. I'm trying to get as much fiber in, into my system as possible. Andrew, fiber is really, it's a big deal. We don't get it. You know how many grams? Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know how many grams of fiber we're supposed to have? We're supposed to get like, I think like 30 grams fiber our bio system should be getting and i think lucky Probably if i get five ten. Yeah. yeah yeah see it all comes back to you God. it does <laughs> all right you've opened a number of restaurants um incorporating different cuisines as we've touched on cooking styles is there a jose garces dream restaurant you have yet to do i would say it's not a dream restaurant it's a card i'm holding that i'm waiting to deploy and i think that eventually I've always felt like the market wasn't ready for this, but I, I do want to do some Ecuadorian food, just straight Ecuadorian, like, right, you know, like to the, to the letter, there's actually, I'm going to plug this restaurant in Minneapolis. I was there this summer for a wedding, a place called Chimborazo. Chimborazo is a mountain in Ecuador, Chimborazo. It was like, I felt like I was in Ecuador and they really nailed it. Like they nailed like all the flavors, all the different techniques. It was like, it was perfect. So and it was full, and I'm like, oh, man, there is a market for Ecuadorian cuisine. I think it can happen. So I don't know. That's something I'm just waiting for the right time and place. Time and place will, will dictate that. Yeah, I love that. Now you're having me crave some Ecuadorian food. I got to look it up. There's got to be some places here. Oh, Chicago, there is. Right? I'll go to La Peña. 
It's on near the old Six Corners, Irving and Cicero. I'm an old Chicago guy. So Irving and Cicero up that way. La Pena, and there's there's a few others. You, you hit me up, hit me up offline. I'll I'll I'll, I'll give it to you my I still have my my cousins are Ecuador and they live there and they they know all the good spots. All right, dude. This was a blast. I was enjoying, you know, chatting, learning. It's good stuff, man. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. I get the, the gift of gab, my uh my wife likes to say, Jose, just <laughs> be fun. Awesome. Thank you. Be well. Bye now. Thanks again to Chef Jose Garces. Find him on Instagram at Chef Jose Garces or at chefgarces.com. To learn more about the Garces Foundation, go to garcesfoundation.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mee. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gym. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.